Hello and welcome to Great Ridge Station, a place to sit back and relax while waiting for your train to board. I'm your host, Sam Helgerson, and I'm pretty much a fixture around these parts. The goal here at the depot is to help you strengthen your own practice of leadership, no matter where you serve. Every episode will give you not only the background theory, but some practical tools that you can use right away. Great Ridge Station is a service of Great Ridge Group, LLC. Thanks for stopping in on your way through. Season 1, Episode 7. So what makes an expert? Well, there's a joke in my wife's family that uh, to understand expert, you have to know that X is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure. Therefore, an expert is a has-been drip under pressure. You know, there's a fair amount of truth in that. So if you're an expert, you may have to learn to avoid the pitfalls that come along with that. I want to start with some general ideas about the nature of information, move on to a conversation about our own role in handling information, and wrap up with some practical ideas that you can use to help you in your life, your work, and your career. First, let's start with a taxonomy of information. Now, taxonomy is a fancy word that really gets to the point of how do you organize things. So it's it's giving names to things, giving structure to things. And so this this is a traditional taxonomy of information includes moving from data to information to knowledge. As I said, that's the traditional model. Now I have a couple more that I would like to add. Those are learning and wisdom. So let's look through these one at a time. First of all, data. Now stay with me on this. It's really hard to define data without using the word data. But data essentially is uninterpreted uncontextualized, numeric, textual, symbolic units of fact. Boy, there's a mouthful. See, in numbers, apart from any interpretive details, is really what data is. It doesn't have to be numbers. As I say, it can be text, it can be symbolic, but, uh, but it is separated from any interpretive details. So, for example, seven by itself pretty much means nothing. It means seven. But that's all you got. But if I tell you that this is the seventh podcast in this series, the data point seven takes on additional meaning based on the context that surrounds it. Data itself is pretty much meaningless apart from some kind of context. That's why it's been said that figures lie and liars figure, because data can be turned to particular uses and can be interpreted in a variety of ways depending on the context with which you surround it. It's just the nature of data. It is, by itself, not terribly useful. And that provides a really good segue to information. Because information involves taking data, providing the context necessary to make sense of it, Essentially, it involves turning data into useful facts. Seven is the data point. This is the seventh podcast turns seven into useful information. Now, that may or may not be a useful fact to you. It is to me because, hey, I have to keep track of these things. The next step is knowledge, taking information and turning it into knowledge. Now, knowledge 
means applying it in specific ways and in specific settings. That's why knowledge management is a thing in a lot of organizations. It's more than just managing data, information, and facts. It involves the ways in which the value of that knowledge gets preserved and turned into competitive advantage. Again, information is mostly useless unless someone takes the time to turn it into knowledge. Information may help you win on Jeopardy, but knowledge becomes the practical application. Probably most of you have heard this French phrase, savoir-faire, and it's taken on some meaning in English that isn't necessarily there in the original French. In the original French, it really means to know how to do. That really comes into this, this distinction between knowledge and information. Information is the knowing, knowledge is the to know how to do. It is taking that information and actually being able to do something with it. Now for a long time the discussion of taxonomies of learning ended here by turning information into knowledge. But in the last few years some authors have added another one and well I've added two so this next bit is mine. So, in my approach to this taxonomy, I've added learning. Let me explain why. All of the previous levels deal with data, information, and knowledge on a purely rational and organizational level. I've added learning because this, in my opinion, is where information takes on personal significance. Information becomes learning when I personally am able to do something with it and I care about its meaning in my own life, and that's critical. Let me give you an example. I met a fellow a few years ago who made custom fishing rods. He showed me all of the components that went into making a rod, showed me how he designed the rods so that they would come apart for convenience, and he showed me how he turned all of those components really into functional work of art. Work of arts? No, works of art. And now I have the data, the information, and even the knowledge about how fishing rods are made. Admittedly, limited data, information, and knowledge, but I understand the process. What I don't have is learning, that next step of what to do with what I know. See, for this friend of mine, the learning involved finding ways to do it better, trying new techniques and creating uniquely beautiful fishing rods. He cared about it in ways that, frankly, I don't. And that's not a bad thing. We all have different carebouts. The things we care about are the things that move us from knowledge to learning. So I'll admit, this is not the traditional approach to a taxonomy of information, but I see learning as a necessary but overlooked step in the process. Until someone cares about the knowledge, no one cares about the knowledge. Someone has to personalize it, and usually that involves mentors, experts, and coaches. See, I've always included wisdom as the top level of this taxonomy because I think it adds an important perspective. Wisdom connects knowledge and learning to ethics, to values, to higher purposes, and it provides a cultural framework for its proper use. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. You know, the original, the original inventors of the atomic bomb wrestled with that question. And the commander of the Enola Gay, the plane that dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima, is quoted as saying, My God, what have we done? See, wisdom learns to ask those questions ahead of time. 
to anticipate the unintended consequences of our actions. Now I wanted to walk through this taxonomy because it can be a helpful tool in recognizing our own growth and our development in a particular area. Always, always, you will start with unconnected bits of data. My first piano teacher started me off with, where is middle C? From there, we advanced to more and more information like practicing scales, chords, and arpeggios. And eventually, we're ready to move on playing actual recognizable songs and move on into knowledge. At some point, a piano student will either get it or not. It will either catch the spark of learning or it won't. So where does wisdom fall in this? Wisdom comes when you realize that you cannot play Beethoven's Ode to Joy in certain settings, because in Europe the tune was co-opted by the Nazis. Indeed, there are ethical and social consequences even in playing the piano. Now in your career, you will develop various skill sets that will provide opportunities for your growth and for your advancement. These are usually made up of technical skills that are pertinent to your field. And often, these fields have impressive titles such as engineer, technologist, researcher, brewmeister. (laughs) And sometimes they come with certifications and licensures such as CPA, DDS, JD, or MD. All of those things bring with them a genuine risk. And I want to caution you against the brain games that can happen as soon as someone calls you an expert. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You will need to develop deep expertise. It becomes your personal competitive advantage in keeping yourself marketable in volatile volatile times. I'm not suggesting that expertise is the problem. The expert mindset is the problem. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not the money. It's the attitude that can come along with it. The love of money. So let me give you an example. Much has been written over the past several years about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's doctor. He had FDR's complete trust and confidence, and he really had the president's best interests at heart. The problem was that he was very protective of his patient, and particularly protective of his role as FDR's doctor. And unfortunately, that meant that he did not keep up on emerging medical technologies and he did not pursue the input of other medical professionals. He was an expert. He knew what was right and he knew how to treat his patient. The problem was that his medical practice was firmly anchored in 25-year-old medical technology and practice. 25 years old then, but nearly 100 years old now. And the landscape of neuromuscular of treating neuromuscular disease had really changed significantly. But he didn't know it. He was an expert. He had no reason to doubt his skills. In fact, other than the debilitating paralysis that Roosevelt dealt with, his health was remarkably good through the 1930s. Now here's the problem that we all face. Once we've earned the title of expert in any field of endeavor, our mindset makes a subtle shift. Our own arrogance kicks in. We start to spend more time defending our title and our turf as an expert than in refining the skills, knowledge, and abilities that earned us that title in the first place. 
you know, I don't want to call this resting on our laurels because I think it's more insidious than that. It's more like hoping our milk does not go sour. And then when it does, keeping people away from the bottle so that they never know that our milk has gone sour. Trust me, I'm an expert. <laughs> when we get tagged as an expert, it's easy to become arrogant about it. If that word res raises red flags for you, that arrogant word raises red flags, uh, and you think I'm being either harsh or judgmental, well, please hear me out. See, this feeds our ego. And something inside of us says, ah, I finally made it. But at the same time, we're all fragile. We all have our self-doubts. And it doesn't take long for our egos to step up and offer protection. See, without recognizing it, we start to care more about being known as an expert than we thought we did. We stop putting our energy into developing our expertise and put energy into protecting our reputation. I want to challenge you to take on this mindset of a humble leader and turn away from being an arrogant expert. It won't take you any more effort, but it will change the shape of your life in years to come. In 1990, AT&T's growth strategy was to string telephone cable in far-flung parts of the world. The experts were sure that that would be the ideal opportunity for continued corporate growth. The experts didn't see cell phones coming, mostly because they had convinced themselves not to. They were, after all, the experts. Lord Kelvin, the scientist and genius behind the Kelvin scale, assured the scientific community that heavier-than-air flight was impossible. But less than eight years later, those two right boys proved him wrong. No one doubted his accuracy. He was an expert. The president of IBM stated that there's no reason anyone would want a computer in the home. And this was after the launch of at least two microcomputers intended for home use. Over the years, experts have stated that the automobile is a novelty. Talking pictures are a fad. No one wants to hear actors talk. And television will never amount to anything. You see the problem here? Who do they ask? Who was it that provided such profound insights? Well, the experts, of course. Experts have a vested interest in keeping things as they are, keeping their expertise valuable, and that keeps them from being the kind of lifelong learners that the world needs, that they really need to be. A few years back, I was having breakfast with a friend, and we were discussing kind of this very subject. He was an executive VP for a solid company, and really, he was a global expert in a very specialized, very technical field. This person had clearly made it. And as we talked about it, he said, yeah, here I am, and I still live with the expectation that someone will walk into my office one day and say, you don't know what you're doing, do you? He admitted he always felt like he was winging it, and he never dared to sit back and enjoy what he had accomplished. Now, I put this out there as a really good example of the kind of humility that is necessary. He really was a big deal in the industry, but that never went to his head. He continued to work hard and seek to develop new expertise. Always learning. That's what it takes. We have to be constantly developing new skills, consulting new data, information, and knowledge, and making it our own. Expertise by itself is fragile, and the world does not hold still for it. It gets outdated very quickly because the world moves very quickly. 
you, no matter what field you are in. You need to be a learner. You need to keep developing new skills. Case in point, one of the most successful blacksmith shops was owned by Will Durant in the 1890s. Here's why I call him successful. They moved from making metal parts as a blacksmith shop to building carriages. And in 1908, Durant bought the Buick Motor Company and General Motors was born. Now, if Durant had been the arrogant sort of expert, he would have put his effort into preserving the blacksmith trade, or at least the carriage builder's trade. But no, he didn't do that. He created a company that looked to the future. Think about this. He looked to the future at a time when there were about 144 miles of paved roads in the entire United States. See, we need to keep developing in ways that allow us to stay marketable, to make a contribution, and serve others. Expertise is a fragile thing when it tries to stand alone, and a beautiful thing when it keeps looking ahead and growing. My hope for you is that you will commit to being a lifelong learner and be an expert in at least one new thing in every decade of your working life. Um, one more thing. This podcast is now available by Google Play, so we're getting easier to find. I'd like to encourage you to download the Podbean app and subscribe to Great Ridge Station. I'd like to ask you to subscribe, give us a like, and leave a comment. And please encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe as well. Together, let's build a community of lifelong leaders and lifelong learners. Thanks for joining us at Great Ridge Station. As the train boards and rolls on to its next destination, we hope you found your time here helpful. Consider what you've learned and what strategies and practices you can implement right now. If you have leadership questions that you'd like us to address, we'd love to hear from you, and you can find the questions link on our show page. We can't answer everything, but we'll watch for themes and big-picture questions and get to as many as we can. All content is developed by Dr. Sam Helgerson with appropriate citations of outside sources. Our sound engineer is Britt Martin. All background and bumper media is in the public domain and retrieved from archive.org. The opening music is from Guy Lombardo, Down by the River. The closing music is from Annunzio Montavani, Skyscraper Fantasy. Limited opportunities are available for supporting sponsorships. Contact information is available on our show page. I'm already looking forward to your next visit to Great Ridge Station. Bye-bye.